Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Party gate is over. Or is it? Sue Gray's long-awaited report into the COVID party scandal in Downing Street landed on Wednesday, and the Prime Minister is still there. We'll be sifting through the debris, a bit like the long-suffering number 10 cleaners, to assess the damage sustained by the Prime Minister after months of scrutiny of his conduct and probity. And then on Thursday, Rishi Sunak rushed forward a £15 billion package of support for households with their energy bills as the government sought to change the subject. The low-tax chancellor jacked up taxes on business again, a £5 billion windfall tax on energy companies with more to come. Having said, he wouldn't. And so, like previous governments, including Conservative ones, we will introduce a temporary targeted energy profits levy. Definitely not a windfall tax. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to British politics from the Financial Times with me, George Parker. Seb's away on the Suffolk Riviera this week, no doubt gnashing his teeth at what he's been missing. So you've got me instead. We'll be looking at the fallout of the Partygate scandal later in the programme with my political colleagues Jim Picard and Jasmine cameron Shileshi to consider whether Boris Johnson really is in the clear, whether this is the start of a long farewell. But first, we're going to start with that huge bailout package for struggling families announced by Rishi Sunak and the controversial taxes he raised to fund it, with our economics correspondent Delphine Strauss and special guest Torsten Bell, director of the Resolution Foundation Think Tank. Thank you all for joining the pod. It's only two months since Rishi Sunak announced his last mini-budget, the March Spring Statement, which was such a dud that he had to come back to the Commons this week to offer more help to families struggling with soaring energy bills. It seems, unfortunately, that the Chancellor forgot the poor last time. This time, Sunak was determined to make amends. So I can announce today we will send directly to around 8 million of the lowest-income households a one-off cost-of-living payment of £650. Support worth over £5 billion to give vulnerable people certainty that we are standing by them at this challenging time. Then there was more money for pensioners, disabled people and a £400 payment for every household. It all added up to £15 billion of extra spending, or arguably over £20 billion if you take into account that Sunak is writing off a £6 billion loan to households he previously planned to claw back over five years. Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, said it all sounded familiar. Let there be no doubt about who is winning the battle of ideas in Britain. It is the Labour Party. Today it feels like the Chancellor has finally realised the problems that the country are facing. We first called for a windfall tax on oil and gas producers nearly five months ago to help struggling families and pensioners. 
In fact, Sunak's package raised even more money from the energy sector via a windfall tax than Labour had proposed, and he spent around twice as much as Reeves had originally suggested. Pretty big stuff. So, Delphine Strauss, how big was it? This genuinely is big. It's, uh, you know, it takes the total support up to about 1% of GDP, and it's true that he genuinely has tilted it a lot more towards the lower end of the income spectrum this time. The claims are correct. Two-thirds of that 15 billion are going to go to families who receive benefits. And it's a pretty big redistribution. There are also some things that charities were very pleased with in the way the money is being delivered. It will get through automatically and pretty quickly in July for the first instalment of the £650 payment. And although there are some rough edges around it, Charities are saying that given where things had got to, that was probably the right way to do it. And Torsten Bell, did Rishi Sunak neglect the poor in his previous statements? And does this address that, as Delphine was suggesting? Well, I mean, that's obviously his view because he's come forward with a big package and as Delphine says, he's targeted it towards lower-income households. Now, I think it's worth stepping back and looking at what the three packages he's now announced, because remember, this is our third go at this with the package in February and the spring statement. If you add those all together, actually what you see is it's a pretty broad-based support for households, around £1,200 to £1,000 per household, right across the income distribution, middle, poor, and higher income. So everybody's getting quite a lot of support. It's slightly higher for poorer households, and they have slightly lower energy bills in general. So I'd say the overall package is actually pretty universal. It's just delivered in different ways. Higher income households are winning from the increase in the national insurance thresholds in the spring statement, and poorer households are benefiting from yesterday's package. So the way to think about it is the package was unbalanced, benefiting mainly middle and higher income households until yesterday. And yesterday he came along and filled in the gap. And which groups, Torsten, are least well protected by this package? Is it people who are living just above the means-tested benefit level? Yeah, so as Delphine was saying, you end up, when you try to put in place uh, emergency support outside of the normal way of increasing benefits each April, you do end up with some pretty tough decisions about how you do it. And he's gone for these one-off payments as the mechanism. I think that is actually broadly the right way to go. It's what we called before in a paper earlier this week, but it does bring with it a number of rough justices. One of them, obviously, is that if you only get a very small amount of benefits because you're just within the means test for a benefit, then you receive the full £650. But if you earn exactly £1 more and are therefore not receiving any benefits, then you get nothing. So clearly those people will feel hard done by. I think also if you look amongst the groups, maybe just focus on the groups that use a lot of energy. So pensioners, some disabled families have very heavy users of energy, and then also larger families tend to have higher energy bills as well. Then what the package does is do a good job on the pensioner front and a good job providing some more support to those with a disability, but it doesn't do a good job of targeting larger families because a single person on benefits will get exactly the same as a family with three kids on benefits. And obviously the latter is seeing, you know, many, many times the rise in energy bills, probably about £500 more for a family with three children versus a family with none. And Delphine Strauss, Rishi Sunak said that uh, the, the effect of all this extra borrowing was that could have a fairly modest effect on inflation. Is that right? Well, there's a fair amount of disagreement on that. And I guess Rishi Sunak also said that he was confident that the Bank of England would be doing an excellent job of keeping inflation under wraps. And he is handing them some pretty tough decisions because the amount of money being handed out will undoubtedly help consumer spending. It will help stop the economies slipping into a recession. 
and it will push up inflation because of that. The question is how much, and there's a very big range of forecasts among economists as to whether it's just a little a little, little modest impact at the margin or whether it could actually mean that the Bank of England has to raise rates quite a lot more sharply than they would have done otherwise. So there's no consensus, but there is possibly a bit of a hot potato being handed to the Bank of England. Yeah, and Torsten, um, this package was announced coincidentally on the same day as Jeremy Corbyn's birthday. I just wondered whether this was the kind of thing, including, of course, the windfall tax on energy companies that a Corbyn government might have done, or indeed, of course, an Ed Miliband government. I think this is slightly a bit of a red herring. I mean, look, any government, whether it was far right, centrist or far left, would be introducing a windfall tax at this point because there's a, you know, this is the issue of the year. There are large windfall profits being made and we live in a democracy where people don't want to see the luck of some people then benefiting while that same cause leads to very big hardships for everybody else. So, you know, this is a textbook case for a windfall tax. It was always going to happen. I don't think it's got particularly large amounts to do with how left or right wing a government is. Remember, Margaret Thatcher introduced a windfall tax on the banks in, in the banks in the 1980s and I don't think anyone thought she was a far left socialist. Now, Delphine Strauss, Rishi Sunak, says he wants to be a low-tax-cutting chancellor, at least. Do you think he'll have scope to start cutting taxes before the general election, expected in 2024? I've seen people pointing out the extra £5 billion coming in for the windfall tax will be taking the overall annual tax take quite close to the £1 trillion mark over the next year or two. No doubt there'll be space for one or two nice ice-catching tax cuts in the run-up to the election. I'm not sure anybody is expecting the overall tax burden to come down dramatically. Is that your expectation, Torsten, as well, that um, taxes have gone up so much that there's probably only one direction they can go now, but people are still going to feel an awful lot worse off from a tax point of view at the time of the election? This entirely depends on what time period you're looking at. So I think in the actual next, you know, 18 months, two years to the general election, yes, I think we're going to be in the announcing small individual tax cuts business. Remember, the Chancellor's got around £25 billion worth of fiscal headroom against his fiscal rules, and he'll be more than happy to use that headroom up as we head towards a general election. But that isn't really the big picture, is it? If we step back and look at the 2020s as a whole, this is us heading into a phase of higher taxes. That's why the Chancellor's already announced large rises to corporation tax and national insurance And that's happening for a number of reasons, including us being an older society, but also because we're a slow growing economy. And the two things together means that, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're a conservative government or a Labour government. We are all social democrats now in the sense that we are growing the state slightly and raising taxes. And Delphi Strauss, finally, do you think this will be the last fiscal intervention by Rishi Sunak before his awesome budget? Or do you think we can now look forward to a slightly more orderly process over the next few months? Maybe the last one before the autumn budget. There are there are quite a few economists saying that even though we now have a stimulus that's sort of roughly in line with what's being provided by other countries in Europe, we've set a precedent for government support to offset these very big cost of living increases, depending on what happens to energy prices over the next few months and, you know, on what happens in Ukraine. There may be more to come before the end of the year. And Torsten, do you think uh, Rishi Sunak's going to have to come back with more help either before the autumn budget or in the autumn budget? And is this the start of an open-ended commitment by the government to pay people's energy bills? No, on the last point, this is not about us permanently compensating households for higher energy bills. If you step back and look at what's actually happening on energy bills, what's going on is that poorer households are being supported now with these direct payments and better off households supported via the measures he's already announced. 
that the poorer household support will then be continued to some degree via the benefit uprating next April that the Chancellor committed to in his statement yesterday and hasn't had enough attention. That means you're going to have a more than 9% increase in benefits next April, the biggest nominal rise since the early 1990s. So you've got a support for poorer households today and tomorrow being announced, keeping those benefits in line with inflation, whereas for higher income households, most of the support measures immediately stop after this fiscal year. So that's the energy support scheme, money off bills, and also the council tax rebate. And they will be then left to pick up a bigger hit to their incomes next year. I think that is almost certainly what is actually going to happen. And one way to think about all of this is we're in a staggered exercise in making take a bit of time for these energy costs to feed through to household budgets. So first of all, we did that with the energy price cap. That meant that wholesale prices didn't feed through to retail prices for consumers. And then these temporary support schemes for the middle and the top of the income distribution are meaning that those retail prices don't hit household incomes for this year, but then they come through next year. So I'm afraid we're in a we're in a staggered business of kind of slowly having our expectations managed. But in the end, I'm afraid, George, you are going to be paying for these higher energy bills. Thanks, Torsten Bell and Delphine Strauss. And now on to our old friend, Partygate. It's not every week that an official government report details instances of wild partying, vomiting and fighting, let alone in 10 Downing Street, in the middle of a national emergency and when the country was enduring a COVID lockdown. Surely somebody had to take responsibility. The entire senior management has changed. There is a new... There is a new... There is a new chief of staff, an elected member of this House who also commands the status of a cabinet minister. There is a new director of communications, a new principal private secretary, and another of other key appointments in my office. Aha, the entire senior management has changed, apart from the people at the top. Boris Johnson's still there, and so too is the head of the civil service, Simon Case. Deputy heads have indeed rolled. And I also want to say, Mr Speaker, above all, that I take full responsibility for everything that took place on my watch. Sue Gray's report has emphasised that it is up to the political leadership in Number 10 to take ultimate responsibility, and of course I do. So the Prime Minister has taken ultimate responsibility by staying in office and telling colleagues he's been vindicated. Certainly the view in number 10 is that Sue Gray's report has not unearthed any killer new facts and that Mr Johnson can now move on from the whole tawdry saga. Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, wasn't so sure. When the dust settles and the anger subsides, this report will stand as a monument to the hubris and the arrogance of a government that believed it was one rule for them and another rule for everyone else. So what have we learned this week? Jim Pickard and Jasmine cameron Shaleshi, welcome back to the pod. Jim, first of all, what did you make of Sue Gray's report? Was it as deadly as some people have predicted? I think it was all hyped up a little too much in, in the lead-up. We had all that stuff about how she was this kind of you know, Whitehall assassin who never missed and how this was going to be explosive and it was going to be terminal for Boris Johnson. And when expectations are set that way, when you see the report and it is written, obviously, in civil service jargon, there was something a little bit yes minister about it because although she painstakingly set out the details of all of these parties and they were full of things which were, you know, had we not already read them in the press, shocking. You know, the fact that there were people fighting and red wine spilled over the, the walls. And there was that horrible line about how 
the blue collar security staff had, you know, and and the cleaners had been talked to in a, in a, in a rude way. You know, so there was stuff in there that was very unpleasant. But when it came to the question of who was to blame, Sue Gray was using this very yes minister kind of ethereal language, which pointed towards the leadership, but not in words of of one syllable. She didn't really name Boris Johnson or Simon Case in, in terms of culpability. So in that way, she did let them off the hook. And the other way in which you know, some conservatives who aren't opposed to Boris Johnson have used the phrase whitewash in private to describe the fact that the report didn't look into the ABBA party, inverted commas, which is the one that occurred in the flat where Boris Johnson lives above number 10. And there's sort of questions about why she didn't do that. And she says she didn't do it because the police were already looking at it. But yeah, there are a few questions there. I think the photographs there really didn't show kind of bacchanalian excess. The photos that were chosen did include some of the most senior people, but they didn't look particularly wild. And I do wonder whether there are lots of photographs out there that would be politically much more damaging, which have not seen the light of day, but maybe one day they will. Well, they're supposed to be 500 photographs, weren't they, Jim? And the ones they chose to publish were certainly <laughs> the dullest parties you've ever seen, to be honest. Now, Jasmine, what did you make of Boris Johnson's response to the report? I think it was actually quite a strange one in that his argument is essentially that he was unaware of some of the events. We heard him speak in the Downing Street press conference that the first he'd heard of some of the sort of more damning details came when he, the report was presented to him on Wednesday morning. And he said, you know, he only turned up to a couple of leaving dues, which he sort of felt would be the honourable thing to do to sort of recognise those staff um, who had worked for him during the pandemic. But I think the whole thing seemed a little bit strange. And I think you know, it was almost like, a you know, you've got a landlord living on the top of a two-storey house arguing that he's got no idea what his tenants are doing on the bottom floor. I think, yes, the report didn't specifically criticise Johnson personally, but I think there is a sense of actually the tone of Whitehall and the tone of what his officials thought they could get away with. That all comes from the top. And I think ultimately his response was a little bit weasley. He said he was humbled. He said he changed some of the the management in in Whitehall. But I I was quite sceptical at his response. And although, as Jim says, yes, a lot of the details about the specific parties had already been widely reported in the press, what stood out for me is that it was very clear reading the report that officials were very conscious that they were breaking the rules. If we think back to the pandemic, the government set in place very unambiguous laws to the point where everyday interactions from seeing a friend to leaving the house became in some cases illegal and in most cases socially unacceptable. And when party gate revelations began, there was a sense from government officials that you know the rules are ambiguous and that it wasn't clear what was a social gathering, what was a work event. But looking at the details of the report, it's clear. I mean, there were WhatsApp messages and emails of officials saying, saying, you know, should we be doing this? We're going to get caught by the press. Is this wise? And so that I thought was quite striking. And I think that sort of blew apart those sort of suggestions of, well, Whitehall and Downing Street was somehow different. They knew that they weren't exempt and they chose to break the rules anyway. Uh, Jim, Keir Starmer, or Sabir Korma, as Boris Johnson called him this week, obviously criticised the Prime Minister, said he should go. But was he impeded in his ability to criticise the Prime Minister by the episode in... Durham, the, uh, the beer and curry evening with campaign workers. Yeah, I mean, he certainly is hamstrung, isn't he, in terms of the fact that he is still the subject of investigation by Durham police into whether this late night event during the campaigning in the spring of last year might have broken the rules itself. It does mean he doesn't quite have that position of moral superiority, which he was able to occupy for quite a long time earlier in the year, which is, of course, one would presume why the right-wing pro-conservative Daily Mail put the story on its front page, I, I believe, a dozen times 
in succession. There, there's a mudding of the waters which has occurred. And that story will turn out to have been a very good story if Keir Starmer is indeed fined and is forced to resign. And in the meantime, it makes it harder for, for Labour to, to attack the government. But I think their point is that these were systemic parties in number 10. They were happening repeatedly. There was terrible behaviour going on. Uh, whereas the curry that he had, uh, where he's photographed with a beer in Durham, they had been working all day and they broke off for this curry quite late in the evening. And when you talk to people inside the Keir Starmer camp, they've had legal advice, which they think will clear them completely. One of those points is that they think they can prove that he was issuing emails and instructions to staff of a work variety very late at night on that particular day. And I think they also privately, you know, talking to some people in the Starmer camp, they think the fact that Boris Johnson was only fined once for the birthday party that he had in the cabinet room and didn't get fined for lots of other gatherings in Downing Street, that is giving them hope that actually there is less pressure on Durham police to basically show evenness and therefore apply loads of fines to, to Starmer. But we could be in a peculiar situation, even if he doesn't get fined, it would be quite a strange one for him to deal with if other people at the Curry party get fined and he doesn't. I'm not quite sure how he would play it in those circumstances. Yeah, okay. So, uh, Jasmine, after the uh, Commons exchanges, there were a few more calls from Conservative MPs for Boris Johnson to quit, but there wasn't a clamour, was there? There'll be some relief in Downing Street about that, won't there? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's quite interesting because Tory MPs on the whole have been pretty hesitant when it comes to sort of publicly sort of en masse voicing criticism of, of of Johnson over this. And I do think there's been this continual narrative from Tory MPs from January of first we have to wait until the Sue Gray report finishes, then the Met inquiry, then the updated Sue Gray report. Now it's the Privilege Committee. I think there is a, a general sense of hesitation because actually removing a prime minister isn't that easy. Yes, you can hit the 54 letters of no confidence, but then it's a matter of, well, will you get 180 MPs to vote against Johnson? And I think Tory MPs, they're weighing up a lot of factors at the moment. So there are questions about who would succeed Johnson if he was removed from office. Is there an individual within the cabinet or within the party that holds the same sort of appeal for portions of the electorate? And then there are those who will argue that actually, you know, the Ukraine crisis means that is this a right time to be to be having a, a leadership contest. And so I think Tory MPs, you know, a couple of them put their head up at the parapet in the aftermath of the Sue Gray report and, and, and said that they were no, no longer happy with Johnson's leadership. But I think on the whole, it's been a relatively quiet response. But I think, you know, he's safe for now. But there are a couple of hurdles coming up in the next couple of weeks that could be quite damaging. So as I mentioned, we've got the Privileges um, Committee report, which will look into whether Johnson lied to Parliament over his account of Partygate. And then we've got the two tricky by-elections. These could all prove trigger points. And I think what's been quite interesting throughout this whole scandal is that there hasn't been one particular cohort of the Conservative Party that's chosen to move against Johnson. We're seeing discontent from different wings of the party. So whether it's 2019ers or whether we have veteran Tories such as Sir Roger Gale. And I think there is a danger that in the next couple of weeks or months, we sort of accidentally reach 54 letters, not through any sort of concerted or organised movement, just because the gradual drip drip of Tory MPs losing confidence in him. So I think he's safe for now. And I'm sure Downing Street breathed a sigh of relief on Wednesday, but there's still a lot of challenges to come. And Jim, I, I bumped into Keir Starmer in the coffee queue and we're talking about all of this. And he was saying that he was quite glad that Boris Johnson was staying on because he's damaged goods as far as the Labour Party are concerned. 
And Keir Starmer thinks that eventually what will happen is, or maybe it's happening already, people will start to conflate the fact that they're having a tough time with the cost of living crisis and ask the question about what people in London, the government, are doing to help them. Do they understand their lives or are they having a, a wild time but living by different rules, having parties in Downing Street? Do you think that is a risk for Boris Johnson? I'm never quite sure whether to believe Labour people when they say they want to keep Boris Johnson in, in place because he is so tainted. The, the truth remains that he is the great political communicator of his generation in the way that Tony Blair was a generation ago, or you know, let's say Margaret Thatcher before that. He did have this enormous popularity and it's quite hard for Labour MPs to work out whether that popularity is permanently poisoned or whether the, the public just thinks the Prime Minister's let them down, let himself down, and they're kind of annoyed with him. But they find still find him kind of interesting to watch, and they still think he does have some sort of vision for the future. He He's very good at talking about the sunny uplands and, you know, the green economic future and a levelled-up future in a way that Keir Starmer still kind of struggles to articulate how a Labour government would be different. So when you look at other people in the Cabinet who could replace Boris Johnson... Some of them would actually be easier competitors in, in what could be a charisma contest where Keir Starmer at the moment is, is struggling somewhat. So I, I'm not sure about that one. Tory MPs aren't sure about it either, which is why they're not bringing down the Prime Minister. I think the other thing about cost of living that you raise is that, yes, the conflation of a Prime Minister who parties during difficult times with economic difficult times coming our way is potentially toxic, the only thing I would say about that, though, is that the package of measures put forward by Rishi Sunak might neutralise that for the next year or so. And bear in mind, they now can turn around and say, whenever Labour says you're not doing enough on the cost of living, they can legitimately say, you put forward a package of measures at the start of the year with a £2 billion windfall tax. We're doing a £5 billion windfall tax. You promised 200 quid for everyone in the country. We're giving 400 you promised £600 for the poorest people in society. We, the Conservative Party, are giving £1,200. They've literally doubled the package that Labour put on the table four or five months ago. And I was really surprised that Labour hadn't seen this coming, anticipated it and raised their own offering in advance. It would have been a very easy thing to do. And I, I think it's their determination to appear fiscally conservative and politically safe, which on this occasion allowed Rishi Sunak to gazump them. And Jasmine, finally, I think a lot of people will breathe a sigh of relief that Sue Gray's report is finally out there. And listen to some Conservative MPs who will say that the public grew bored of this subject a long time ago. Is that your judgment as well? Have people got bored with this ages ago? And is this just something the media have been flogging? I think it's really interesting. If we think back to sort of the May elections and as part of our coverage, I went out of Westminster and did a bit of vox popping in various places. And what I found is that when I was in Wandsworth um, ahead of the locals, there was a real sense of anger and betrayal and frustration towards Johnson. What people were saying to me, it felt really visceral. And there was a sense of disgust at how could this person who was setting these rules how can his officials act in such a flagrant manner? And then having been to places like Greater Manchester and, and, and elsewhere, there's a sense of, well, actually, the party's happened, but, you know, we've got other things to talk about. And so I, mean, I don't have any polling or data to hand, but my instinct is that maybe in those sort of metropolitan leafy areas, maybe there is a greater frustration with Johnson, but, you know, would they have voted for Johnson anyway? But I think once you get outside of the capital, 
that concern is is less so. And I think it was quite interesting to see someone like Stephen Hammond, you know, come out yesterday and say that he no, no longer supported the Prime Minister. Because if we look at his constituency in Wimbledon, it's that sort of demographic of sort of leafy, um, well-educated individuals who were the exact type of people who were likely to be frustrated by Partygate. Um, so I say there isn't really a consistent picture across the country, but I'd say like social, economic and geographical factors do play a part. Jim and Jasmine, thanks for joining us. And thanks also to Delphine and Torsten. That's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And we also love positive reviews and ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Howie Shannon. And engineers are Joshua Gabert-Doyen and Jan Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.